Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Frog Snacks podcast. It is the last day of November, and it is the last entry in our Sega Suite. Uh, it's Sega Suite Episode 4. We went over the heyday of the Sega console era and its battles with Nintendo. We went over the, the, the Dreamcast. We went over Sonic, the uh, unofficial mascot of, uh, of, the, of the whole company, really, at, at, at one point and going forward. And this is, the last, uh, this is the last episode in the Sega Suite. And what we kind of did for this one is chose five games, uh, Sega-developed games, that we uh, that that not that we just we 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 felt we needed to mention either they were personal favorites or they struck a chord or they were just really weird and we wanted to talk about it. So uh, this is um, this is it. Uh, this and then we're gonna and then we're gonna go over some uh, other Sega stuff at the end. So I'm gonna let Frog go first. He's got his five games ready. Um, Ready to go. Ready to go. So why don't you run down? Why don't you run down your list? What's your 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 five? All right. So yeah, let's have some nice discussion about my top five. Yes. So start with number five, which is Space Channel Five. Yes. Now we briefly mentioned this during a Dreamcast episode, mm-hmm. but Space Channel Five, even now, is one of the most batshit crazy games. That you can ever play, and uh, and at this point, there's not a, not exactly a shortage of batshit crazy video games. No, there's not between all of Japan yeah. and uh, <laughs> a lot of the indie scene. Yeah, there's certainly no shortage of batshit crazy games. But this still, uh, go. We're coming up on twenty years after its release, uh, and it's still it still boggles the mind of anybody who touches the controller to play it. Uh, for those of you who don't know what Space Channel 5 is, you basically are going to be in the shoes of the space journalist slash dancer, Ulala, as she dances her way to saving the galaxy from, you know, people with bad vibes and shit. As I say that, it's funny because it sounds like a mocking of millennials that would happen today. You can't even say it with a straight face. Like, it just... You really can't. It's... <laughs> It's preposterous. There's no way to describe, describe it without being like, what? And then Michael Jackson is randomly in the game. Like, what? <laughs> uh, yes. But it's, ex- it's extremely fun. And it's actually pretty hard. Uh, because the basic gameplay is, you know, it's a series of dance-offs. And you have to imitate the moves that the, the game gives you. See, that's and- something we failed to mention last, last time. Like, the... Uh, the only thing we really said about it was that it was a music game and it was really weird, but every level is a dance off. Like that you're you're fighting is the whole yeah. thing. Is you're you're doing the regular like, you know, um like motions as they show up like in a regular music game, but you perform them well and you are like attacking and it's and it's just it's a dance off. Yeah, it it's a straight up dance off. And yeah. That's, a, that's really a game that, I mean, I'd like to say that they should revisit it, but <laughs> I'm hard-pressed to believe that anybody currently at Sega is going to authorize that that expenditure. Right. <laughs> but uh, it really would be something interesting to revisit for a modern audience. Like, I can imagine that being a pretty interesting arcade game, like a new school, because really the... Excuse me. One of the few genres that's still pretty relevant in arcades, both in the West End and Japan, are, are rhythm games, and uh, that would definitely be the kind of rhythm game that I think could definitely hook people and you know give somebody a, a very unique experience of nothing else. Oh yeah, definitely. Plus, there's plenty of room to make it hard enough to you know suck away people's dollar bills. So there's yeah. that too. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Space Channel 5, number 5, awesome game. Also available pretty much on every modern platform in some way, shape, or form. So I would definitely recommend pick up on a sale, check it out, uh, have some laughs with that. Uh, number 4 for me is Super Monkey Ball 2. Yes. Yes. One, now, of, one of the ones Frog stole from my list. <laughs> that I gave to you first, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Super Monkey Ball 2 is an important game to me because it's also pretty batshit crazy. Uh, but it's also just really well executed. Uh, again, for those who aren't familiar with the Super Monkey Ball series, you are a monkey inside a ball. <laughs> and your job is to navigate said monkey by manipulating all these different stages uh, that they give you. So it's an action puzzle game. Yeah. Like Space Channel 5, a really, really hard uh, action puzzle game. Like, this game is definitely harder in its way than Space Channel 5 is in its way. Uh, but they give you, like, a ton of levels. And then on top of the, the pretty extensive single player is a bunch of different party games you can have, too. So there's, like, Monkey Golf, like, Monkey Bowling, and all these other ridiculous uh, but very fun uh, four-player mini games that you can take on with friends. Still Definitely. very fun, even to this day. Uh, this is also a good place to give out a shout-out to the streamer Jeff, uh, who I came across because one of the games he plays is Monkey Ball, and he's astoundingly good at it. <laughs> uh, just having casual conversations with people while speedrunning the game and doing all these tricks that I'm like, I don't even know how anybody came up with them. You know, falling off the level and landing precisely on the goal point. Yeah. And, and things, that's just like the tip of the iceberg. Uh, so shout out to him. Check him out, G-E-O-F-F, Jeff. Uh, but definitely check out Super Monkey Ball because that series is, even as frustrating it is, uh, I'll admit that when I first had the game for GameCube, I sold it away. I was like, that is game. <laughs> oh my god. But, yeah, I was so butthurt. I but. guess it's, I, you know, it, 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 I don't want to say that it's like an acquired taste because it's not like... It's it's not like that distinguished where you would have to be like this, you know, uh, the, you have you would have to have like such a such a refined palate to enjoy it. But I can see how it wouldn't translate well to a child. Right. Or an early teenager. Yeah, right. As I was at the time. Yeah. Or a young person, especially at the time, you know, given all the crazy stuff that was coming out around then. Right. I mean, hell, it's even worse now. But right. So it sounds crazy that you did that, but I I mean what you were like 13, 12, whatever. Yeah. It I makes mean, a little bit more sense to me given the context. Thank you for not holding as a black mark on my on my gaming record. Oh, listen, you know I'll call you out when it when the time comes. <laughs> You're going I'm going to get called out during this conversation <laughs> already, now, but you know, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, uh yeah, but Monkey Ball is super awesome. It's the kind of game that I would definitely recommend younger people check out younger people god it makes me sound old uh younger people check out just to see like the kind of cool arcadey stuff that sega is has made its name on yeah back in 90s early 2000s also because it was made by the now defunct studio amusement vision who as snacks will know and might even roll his eyes a little bit uh i'm drooling at the words amusement vision because they are responsible for the Godly F Zero GX. Mm-hmm. You knew I was. There were. You knew that these four episodes were not going to escape without me making one reference to that game. Well, I will. I will say that uh, F Zero AX, mm-hmm. which was the arcade version of F Zero GX, which yep. God knows how few of those they made. But again, I was super lucky enough to have one in my local movie theater. Uh, Which I be- is still mind blowing to me. I on. believe was developed by Sega. Well, yeah, the whole the whole project is a Sega project. Yeah. So they Amusement Vision did that game. Uh, in fact, if I am not mistaken, that is one well, maybe not the last because I think they did the Wii version of Monkey Ball after that before the studio went under. Uh, but yeah, that was that's certainly the highlight in that studio's resume, the the GX AX series. Yeah, uh, and yes, yeah, Sega put out that arcade machine, uh, and that was also fun fact the first collaboration between Sega and Nintendo. So it was it was like <laughs> how do you even, it was like the nerd version of like a Middle East peace resolution when that game came out. Listen to this, okay? Listen to this, okay? So our my good friends over at ArcadeMuseum.com which has all the, like, basically the census stats for arcade machines. 
has got the has got the digs on F Zero AX. F Zero AX uh, has there were only um, ninety one machines, ninety one known released machines in the United States. Uh, period. Wait, period. Period. Ninety one. Ninety one. Uh, there are um, there are seven members of the arcade museum uh, family that that are uh, that own the machine. Um, five of them are original, dedicated. Uh, one is a conversion, and one is a set of circuit boards. Uh, so basically, the guts. Um, this is uh, this game ranks. They have the they have the census popularity right. based on ownership records. Uh, out of out of out of a hundred, one being the least common and a hundred being the most common, uh, it's a one. Wow! So not only did I, and I'll get to my list, but I I lived in some sort of weird arcade gold mine when I was a yes, kid. Yes, you did. Because I had all this stuff, and I was just like everybody has it. Nope. <laughs> no. No. The answer is no. So brief aside. They're because going. Wait, wait, wait. They're going. They're going for uh, five thousand dollars on eBay. Woo! <laughs> the full, the full cabinet. That's actually not bad. I was, you know what? I was like, kind of like, I wonder if Frog would go halves with me on that. Well, ain't nobody have twenty five hundred dollars. But <laughs> <laughs> we need a team. We need a task force. Yeah, we need. A task we need to force. set up a GoFundMe. To get an F Zero machine. Yeah, to get an F Zero AX, put it in my small ass apartment, taking up half the space. Whatever, that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> but even yeah, that's actually not bad for a game that rare. And this is one of the things um, that we've kind of lost with the death of arcade culture, and hell, even with the soon to be the death of retail gaming culture, which is being able to get these rare finds. Uh, in the digital age, there's no such thing as a rare game. Yeah. Because every game is out there. Which yeah, is true. mostly great because people shouldn't have to pay $5,000. Imagine if $5,000 was the only way you could play F-Zero GX. That would be a tragedy of untold proportion. Yeah. But at the same time, those kind of rare finds are really cool. You know, and, and the fact that Somebody could be like you and live in, in some area of the country and then find out that just in their local movie theater or whatever, they happen to have this ultra rare arcade machine. That stuff is kind of important, I think. Yeah. The cool thing about the AX2 is that it had a slot for a GameCube memory card. Right. Because that's how you unlocked the part of the concept that I remember was announced at the time was that you could take your memory card there, and by playing on the arcade machine, you unlock the AX Cup in the GameCube version, which you could also unlock by being really good at the game. But right. As a shout-out to our friend Donald, too, actually was really good at the game. Yeah. And that's a that's a tough-as-nails game. Oh, yeah. I mean, you it, it, it boils down to so many different things, and, like, you you would you would be surprised that you know a lot of this a lot of the things that the mastery of F Zero requires is a lot of the same stuff that mastery of like a lot of you know high profile you know esport titles require you know right. not only not only do you have to be just good at the game uh, be able to perform well under pressure and against other humans but it requires an immense amount of memorization. Uh, because a lot of it you you just simply can't react to, and um, right. and just you know uh, general like um, you know twitch reflexes. So it's um, it's it, it, the, the gameplay is surprisingly deep for a racing game, and yeah, we could we could have a whole episode devoted to F Zero GX, but uh, we have a lot more to cover. Yes, we do. So uh, shout out to F Zero, shout out to Super Monkey Ball, shout out to Amusement Vision. Or rather, rip Amusement Vision. Yeah, and shout out to uh, ArcadeMuseum.com. Absolutely, for letting us know exactly how rare the rarities are. Yeah, for being the Census Bureau of the video game world. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so number three is Valkyria Chronicles. Yes. Uh, a super awesome game. We're going to skip over the discussion for that because 
telling you off the bat, it's on Snacks list. It is. So yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, I refuse to remove it from my list. Yeah, there's no reason. Actually, when we, when I propose that we do this format, uh, I it immediately. But when I was even concepting it, I was like, Valkyrie is the overlap between both of us. That's like given, and then there's gonna be four other games. Uh, so it's really like a top eight off the bat. Yeah, but but it's fine. So Valkyria Chronicles is three. My number two is Yakuza Four. Yes. Now the Yakuza series, which I just was able to get into uh, fairly recently, is super awesome. Uh, and I haven't played Shenmue. I you know I hear shrieks from the Sega fans already, <laughs> but uh, I have not been able to play Shenmue. But I can clearly see from the footage of Shenmue that I've seen that Yakuza is clearly the uh, the stepchild of Shenmue. Uh, very cool reality-based drama. You know, you are playing in Yakuza 4, you play as a guy kind of running like a loan truck business and in, in the process gets entangled with the dealings of the Yakuza. Yeah. Uh, it's essentially like uh, GTA in Japan um, but there's all sorts of these re- surprisingly deep side games in there like you can go to the batting cages <laughs> uh, there's a surprisingly deep uh, darts game in there yeah. and that's just and that's just the stuff that I've had time to delve into so far one of the things I like about it is like Sleeping Dogs uh, another kind of underrated open world game I uh, the hand-to-hand combat in this game is really strong. So just getting into fights with random thugs who are like, I'm going to fuck you up, and then, you know, you stomp them and throw their heads into a dumpster uh, is extremely, extremely satisfying. So Yakuza is a awesome series. Playing 4 has me immediately excited. Uh, I didn't get to play 5 yet, but I might be able to play 5, but definitely going to get my whole hands on a PS4 so I can try out 6, which they're going to take that concept of all these batshit crazy minigames to a whole new level. There's going to be, like, a whole dating side game in the game where you can, like, go on websites and, like, talk to chicks. It's going to be weird. <laughs> nice. And they're also, they're putting all of Virtual Fighter 5 Final Showdown inside of Yakuza 6. Yeah. So you can go to the arcade and play some VF5. Not bad. Video games inside of video games are always uh, a, a weird but great thing. Yeah, and we really need more of them. And especially when they involve amazing fighting games like Virtual Fighter Five. Yeah, you know, we could probably have a whole episode on video games inside of video games. Because I can think I've of like... that many? I can think of like three off the bat. Because the only two I know are this and Animal Crossing. Okay, so that Animal Crossing. Uh, Final Fantasy Fifteen has it. Xenosaga Episode One has it. And I'm sure we could think of, like, that's, that's like, four right off the cuff, like, without even thinking. I'm sure we could come up with more. We'll have to have that conversation. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Anybody listening, if you have more, yeah, hit please. us up on Twitter. Hit us up. And, yeah, we'll see if we can get that going. But uh, that will then bring us to the number one game for me, which is Sonic Generations. <gasps> <gasps> which is an- another... Actually, I don't even know, because the Sonic fandom in 2016 is very embattled. Yeah. Because the gaming population at large has completely written off Sonic for very good reason. Yeah. But uh, the fandom is quick to defend this game and Sonic Colors in particular against the people who were like, Sonic died after Genesis, which is itself kind of a ridiculous statement. Yeah. But, uh, in particular, these two games get defended, but Generations I liked so much, I would elevate it to be not only my favorite Sonic game, but my favorite Sega-developed game, period. That I've played. This is the disclaimer. All these games are only games that I've actually played. So there's a bunch of games we did not mention. I'm probably not going to mention this simply because uh, we haven't played them. Uh, so these are the top five games that I've actually played developed by Sega. And the top of that is definitely Sonic Generations. So why? Why is this so great? Uh, 
again, going back to kind of this historical perspective of the Sonic fandom and the series in general, we went into pretty exhaustive detail during the Sonic episode about how the series went through so many ups and downs. This was a huge up after a long slide downward. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) This game came out after, after the horrors of Sonic and the Black Knight. Uh, the series current Nadir. Uh, this was a huge uh, swelling of faith to the fans for good reason. So you got a Sonic game that was tightly polished, no shitty friends. Actually, that's kind of a lie. The shitty friends are there, but they're there in like side. You don't play as them. They basically give you side tasks to do. Yeah. So no shitty friends. You get, I think, it, what is it, nine main levels, which you play as as classic and new Sonic, so it's really 18, uh, which is itself an extremely cool concept because you get uh, all these levels from two perspectives, from a 2D and from a 3D perspective, uh, both of which are well done. They bring in... All the history of the franchise. The game is called Generations. It was the 20th anniversary celebration, uh, and they did that extremely well. They brought in all this great music from the series. They picked all the best levels from the series. They paid homage to all the best moments from the series. All the best characters from the series showed up. It was a meaty game. It was well done all the way through. Hardly any missteps to be found, which is... Again, for a Sonic game in the 2010s is a miraculous statement, uh, which is why those of you that saw the trailer for uh, the next two Sonic games coming up know that they made special uh, mention that this is going to that the next 3D Sonic game is coming from the team that did Generations. Uh, that's because this game was such a breath of fresh air. For people who thought, who the people who gave it a chance and thought that Sonic was dead, this was the game to tell them, no, it's not. I think it's easily the best 3D Sonic game, unquestionably. Um, the only games I could imagine would surpass it, if you really were into like that, are the Genesis originals. Uh, but yeah, that is my top five. Uh, all right, pretty good. Very impassioned. I appreciate that. So, <laughs> without uh, further ado, I have my five. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna disclaimer mine as well uh, by saying that a lot of the ones that I wanted to use, uh, Frog had already picked. Um, but I kind of I, I kind of went in a different direction with my Sega Top Five. Now, uh, one of the things we really didn't mention, I think, enough. Uh, in the first three episodes of the of the Sega Suite series, is mm-hmm. Sega had probably one of the more robust uh, arcade presences out there. They still um, do, and they still do in a lot of ways. So even when uh, you know you can you can really point to you know the, the there was a golden age of of the arcade, right? And it was oh, right around the same time as uh, video games being this big uh, foreign oddity in, in the United States. Uh, you know, before the crash and before it, it moved into uh, people's living rooms, it was in arcades. And, and it was kind of like where uh, the kids like us would hang out uh, outside, right. of, outside of home. This was, um, this was, it, it was new, it was impressive, it was crazy. Um, that... Uh, that kind of aesthetic really hasn't died in Japan, uh, although it is currently dying a little bit. Um, but it, it it gave way pretty quickly in the United States. But a lot of uh, arcade enthusiasts and a lot of arcade historians will point to a period in the early to mid-90s, right around the same time uh, Sega was, was really giving Nintendo a run for its money, as a time where arcades kind of made a little bit of a resurgence in the United States. And Sega was almost entirely responsible for this. And right. a couple of the things that they did that, uh, you know, I, I really still think they don't get a lot of credit for in the West is they 
they went a completely crazy route with with arcade cap. If you look at arcade cabinets again, I spend I spent a lot of time. You know, I, I grew up in uh, a place that I am only now realizing miraculously had some of the biggest, rarest arcade cabinets out there. I mean, I had arcade. Don't get it. I had arcade cabinets in my. Movie theaters. I had them in my mall. I had like a like a straight up mall arcade, like old school mall arcade. I had a, um, I had them everywhere. My dentist office had um, Donkey Kong Three arcade cabinet. Like what? they were literally everywhere. Like these arcade machines were literally everywhere for me. My video rental place back in the day. You know, aging myself a little bit, but still they were there. It, they were and they were rare some of these so and I'm, I'm coming uh, I'm, I'm, I'm only coming now to realize that a lot of these were, were Sega uh, they were 100% Sega right so uh, a couple of mine were uh, a, a couple of my five were three of my five actually were um, arcade arcade titles and this was what this was kind of Sega's signature in the early 90s in the arcades um, the biggest Arcade cabinets, the flashiest, the most ostentatious, the the most space consuming. They were the largest video game cabinets there. Those were the Sega ones, uh, the ones that cost seventy five cents instead of twenty five cents because they were just like mountains of plastic. Those were the Sega ones, <laughs> and those were those were the ones that caught my eye as a child, and that's why. You know, that's why Sega was such a, you know, was so single-handedly responsible for this resurgence in the early 90s. And uh, so my, my first one, up, I'm going to get, I'm going to do the arcade ones right off the bat, the, the three arcade ones right off the bat. Um, the House of the Dead series. Ah, uh, uh, yes. The House, the House of the Dead. The House of the Dead series started off as your, you know, your, your kind of regular, like, um, you know, like dual shooter type thing, right? It, it took place in a haunted mansion. There was the whole zombie thing. Uh, it was done by uh, a, a subsidiary of Sega called Sega Wow. Um, I don't know why, or or, or uh, sometimes it's written as Wow Entertainment. But they were the ones responsible for uh, a couple of other big titles as well. Uh, they did um, they did Sega GT Racing. They did uh, what else did they do? Um, oh man, they had, they did Skies of Arcadia, um, you know. So they they did a couple of um, they did a couple of bigger names for Sega, but uh, this was this was the one that I thought was the coolest. Uh, House of the Dead did a couple of things that I liked a lot. They were the one of the first games that I can think of that. Uh, kind of brought in a lot of my favorite things to one. Now, I, uh, a, a, another disclaimer: House of the Dead is not a great video game by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> it's it's not very good. I doubt it holds up well t- by today's standards. Uh, the voice acting is atrocious. I mean, to this day, <laughs> to to this day, I'm convinced it's the worst voice acting I've ever heard in a video game. So that's a oof. That's and, a hot competition. Oh, oh, I, I mean, before I ever gave two shits about voice acting, I remember looking at my friend and being like, are they serious? It's so bad. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like the voice that you would read, the voice that you would speak with if you were making fun of somebody who's like doing a bad local commercial. Like, wow. it's so bad that it, they, you can't, you don't want to think that they're being serious. But they are. So... Uh, the the graphics probably aren't very good. It, it, it's um it's a it's like, like kind of a played out rail shooter and it's the whole zombie aesthetic and like whatever. Um, but it does a couple things that I really like. One, uh, boss battles. Uh, boss battles are something that are tragically absent in today's day and age in video games. I love the boss battles. Yeah. Some of them are really 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 cool. They have this crazy sloth. Uh, boss battle where it's like a giant zombie sloth and he but he goes really fast and you fight him in this cage and he like throws corpses at you it's like very morbid but like super cool and memorable obviously they have like um uh like sea monsters you have to like shoot the heads off like a like a medusa style or whatever or, or whatever uh so really awesome boss battles um excellent 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 co-op um a ton of very cool um 
you know, like secrets. Like there were there were there were times where we were running through it, and you were like, "Oh, you shoot that window, and there's like a thing that comes out of it, and it gives you like double damage for the next whatever." And like you would, ne- there's just zero hints. Ooh. Like you would just know it from playing the game so often and missing so often that you would eventually find the secrets. Um, that's the kind of thing that you get to go show off to all your friends. Yeah. Like when they, you first show them the arcade machine, you're like, check this out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoa, uh, how'd you know about that? Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, when House of the Dead 3 finally rolled around, they did a um, they did kind of a bundle release for the original Xbox with House of the Dead 1, 2, and 3 on it. And uh, moving that to the living room was just, like, such a perfect time to do it. It was right before Xbox Live, and, like, the original Xbox had four controller imports, in, uh, inputs, and it was, like, I, I spent I spent a lot of time, me and my friends, like, playing House of the Dead. So House of the Dead, you know, definitely a special place, definitely not a great game, but definitely did a lot of really cool things. And another thing that House of the Dead 2 and 3 did was it kept track of individual scores. So you would finish a level... And it would be like, player one did this well, and player two did this well. And then, so it had this friendly competitive element to it as well, which you'd never see in co-op games. Uh, so well, I liked that. Not back then, certainly. I was also going to yeah. add to your point about it not being a quote-unquote great video game. It definitely is one of those games that is designed specifically for the arcade. Oh, because yeah. Because they know this is kind of, uh, you know, we talk about games as a service now. But that's like a different kind of service. Or I should say, it's a game as a specific need fulfiller. So you're at this place, and you're expecting like this big, flashy experience uh, that ideally you can play with a friend and is not something, and as you just uh, laid out, later, the other part that came to the equation, big, flashy experience, and it became important later to have something that was also not easily replicable inside your home. Uh, because yeah. that's that's why arcades died, because you could, all the games that were good in arcades came to home consoles and you didn't need to go to the arcade anymore. Exactly. Uh, especially once online play became a thing. But, uh, yeah, House of the Dead, even today, uh, there's a House of the Dead, big House of the Dead machine in my Dave and Buster's in my town. Um, it, it, it serves a specific need, which is Big, flashy, dumb game. You can call up your friends, go, and shoot zombies in the face until they die. Right. Absolutely. So the other one uh, the other one that I had mentioned was uh, – and, and I mentioned it before in the podcast uh, – Gunblade, Gunblade New York. Now, just for reference, I uh, – again, our, our buddies at ArcadeMuseum.com, they got the census in, information on this. This is one that a lot of people haven't heard of and it's kind of hard to find. Uh just to compare it to um, F0AX, we, well, we said 91. There uh, were 90, I came. 91 machines released. This one had 534. So there were six times as many uh, of this machine that were developed. And whatever, whatever House of the Dead did, Gunblade New York did it on just like on crack cocaine it was <laughs> it was uh everything that was that's fun about an arcade shooter but times a thousand like it had it was it was a bigger arcade cabinet the guns were gigantic like they weren't it wasn't a light pistol they were mounted onto like a countertop and the screen was massive and it was like a flat screen it was a 50 inch projection tv Right. Oh my God. Yeah, this was no joke. This was a gigantic arcade cabinet, um, and the and the the gun um, vibrated constantly. So you, the whole idea is that it's a um, you know it's it, it's a it's a rail shooter again, but you're in a helicopter. So the whole thing is you have these like fifty caliber machine guns, and that's what you're shooting at. But this one was cool because <clears throat> it took place in New York. Obviously, right. made it awesome. Um, a very, a very strong uh, detailing of the city of New York. They did a good job. Like you, you're on the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. You know, you're in like, you know, real like real landmark stuff. Like you're not, you're not doing like they didn't do this like crappy representation of Times Square. And you're like, look, you're in New York, and like no, it was. <laughs> They were doing, like, the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. Like, if you don't live in New York, you, you've never driven on the Verrazano Narrows. 
So they they had stuff like that. Uh, everything exploded when you shot it. <laughs> um, it took place in quote unquote the future, which was two thousand five. Right, which right, I right. Lo- which I loved. Um, and another uh, a fun side story is that um, the twin towers are in the game, and I remember when uh, I remember when my uh, so so the, the place that had it when I was a kid was the um, was the local uh, video rental place, and uh, we didn't have like a big chain uh, that was close to my house. I mean, we had one in town, but. Uh, I, I went. I went to some local place because it was closer, and they had all the pinball machines and stuff. So I was like, "This is the spot." Right. So I went there and I asked the owner why it was missing, and he told me that somebody had offered him um, money for it. Uh, somebody had just offered to buy it because uh, the twin towers were in it, and this was maybe like two thousand three. Mm. And I guess people were doing research or whatever, and some guy found some collector contacted him, maybe. Maybe he had a, you know, the serial number was attached to the address and he contacted him or something and, and said he wanted to buy it. And he wouldn't tell me how much the guy offered him for it, but he said it was, it was enough for him to sell it. So I said, okay. But he told me that was the reason that they contacted him and said, you know, this, I, I want this because it has this in it. And I was like, that's, that's kind of weird, but very cool. So that was the wow. last time I saw it. But again, if you want to play this game, you need to look no further than New Haven, Connecticut. If you're in the New York area, that's a that's a one hour train ride from Grand Central. Go there, go to Barcade, and they have it there. Really, I've seen it. So, <laughs> so Gunblade this, New York. Gun, Gunblade New York. And the only way to I don't care if you can find a ROM for it, it does not matter. The only way to play this game is with the giant guns that vibrate and the big fifty inch TV. It's the only way. Of course, it's the only way. So those were I, I said three. Those were those were actually the two arcade arcade ones I had. They both came out around the same time, uh, you know, er, uh, early nineties. This was all Sega. This was their signature arcade style back in the day. Um, the other three that I had, um, I meant, and again, I kind of I kind of wax nostalgic about this one last time, but uh, Jet Set Radio and Jet Set Radio Future. Uh, ah yes, Jet Set Radio. Uh, and if and you know I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna rehash I'm not gonna reiterate my entire uh, ramblings about it. But um, you know, perfect, uh, just just like perfect timing with that game, like just nailed the <clears throat> nailed this like anti-establishment culture of like a, a, of the '90s with with like the 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 hype of the X Games and and the style and the fashion and everything that I was kind of like you know. Uh, not not aspiring to be, but like when I was a little kid, this was what like the cool kids were doing, and and you it identified just, with it. And I just it, it just struck a chord. Like Jet Set Radio and Jet Set Radio Future was just like what the coolest game in the world was to me for a while, and and uh, so I, I loved that. The other one is uh, kind of kind of um, antithetical to Sonic Generations, and, and I had to throw a Sonic game in here, and and I had to do. One that I thought was good for specific reasons. Obviously, it's not the best one, and it's uh, kind of a bad one by most people's standards. <laughs> but uh, I, I do love Sonic Heroes, and I had to put it on the list. So Sonic Heroes is great because uh, I thought it was one of the earlier Sonic titles to kind of like get close to nailing the 3D Sonic experience, right? Right. And it was 2003, and it was... Uh, it, it was interesting because you were constantly playing as three characters at a time and it had this kind of a like lost Vikings vibe to it where each of the three members of the team had a different power. Yep. And, uh, you know, you had to switch based on what you were trying to do. There was a speed, like a technique and a power character. Oh, it was speed, flight and power. So somebody that could, you know, uh, fly if you needed to get up to a high distance, somebody that uh, was strong if you needed to break through a rock or whatever. And, uh, you know, it wasn't great. It was kind of corny, uh, but I'll, I'll never forget the opening jingle to Sonic Heroes. Sonic Heroes! Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's great. I, I just want that to be my ringtone. You know, it's, it's – <laughs> I could, like – I could fall asleep song. to that. It's a – it's so- soothing to me. But – Let's have – I need to have a really quick aside here now that you just brought that up. Yeah. Uh, because we did not give enough play also – I'm also I'm super glad you brought up the arcade 
uh, important to say because you're right. That's such an integral part of Sega's story. Oh yeah. That we barely, even with your uh, nice uh, discussion, we barely scratch the surface of that. But also, we have to give a shout out to the fact that Sega games, even now, uh, have a lot of really great music in them. Uh, yeah. The Sonic series has so much awesome music in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, Generations in particular, they remixed the hell out of a lot of stuff, and it came out absolutely amazing. Uh, there's so many memorable themes across the game. The, the Jet Set Radio <laughs> uh, pair of games had phenomenal soundtracks. Oh, yeah, and this was all... From other... You know, yeah, and things. this was and this was all licensed music too, and there and they had uh, like some pretty robust. This was all like it, it was all in like the house uh, kind of like early techno type stuff, but it was great. And uh, that's not usually like my kind of jam, but they were there were some there were some songs in that game that we still talk about today, like me and my friends from like middle school and stuff. Right, and uh, and then you had like Crazy Taxi. You know, with all right. the licensed offspring songs and You mean all the you mean the one licensed offspring song? <laughs> <laughs> but it was a licensed song and it was a good one. All I, all I want by the offspring. And then there was a bad there was a bad religion song too and I can't remember the name of it. I think it was you. It might have been you. Uh the name of the song, you, I think. Well, I'm not sure because I got in the crazy taxi after they took out all the licensed music. Right, yeah. So <laughs> you know, I have to do my due diligence on that one, but yeah, and and again, that's just a, a slight example. But uh, Sega games are Sega t- is one of those studios that definitely took music very seriously. I mean, hell, remember we did mention they had freaking Michael Jackson work on Sonic Three. Yeah, and then later he appeared in in Space Channel Five. Like this is a company that took music seriously. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, shout-out to Sega on that point, too. But consider. Definitely. So, uh, so yeah, so uh, just, to, just to finish off Sonic Heroes, uh, I say it was kind of antithetical to Sonic Generations because it wasn't really, like, this turning point. It was just kind of one that resonated with me, and I thought, like, tried a couple of things that I thought were refreshing at the time. But one of the things that, like, people are, are going to hate on it for, but, you know, it, it's kind of necessary for all of these things to be implemented, but it was it was essentially uh, Sonic's shitty friends the game. It had, <laughs> yeah. it, had uh, it had a main cast of, I think, 12? Yeah, 12, because there was four different teams you right. could run through. The, four the, the four teams. Here, here are all of the characters. Um <laughs> And let, let me know if let me know if one of these is is uh you know somebody you like really personally resonated with as a child. Oh yeah, um, of You had uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, Tails, and Knuckles. Sure. Yep. Fine. Okay. We'll let that we'll let that go. Yep. Uh, Shadow the Hedgehog. Yep. Uh, Rouge the Bat. Mm-hmm. E one one two three Omega. I don't remember that guy. He was uh, kind of like the robot that uh, that like Eggman would like drive in, but I guess he was uh, he's sentient now and had claws. I, I think uh, I think that's who E E one two three. I'm looking at the Sonic uh, w- like fan wiki page right now, and E one two three Omega is uh, okay. He's the spiritual successor to E one zero two Gamma who is part of the same robotics production line in the series, who was created by Eggman. So, yeah. They, Basically another uh, uh, Eggman's failed Sonic killer experiment. Yeah, essentially. But he's sentient in this one. Quick and, side note. And, and he's um, friends with Shadow the Hedgehog. <laughs> bros forever. Uh, quick side note. I, I'm forever going to laugh every time I hear about Rouge. Yeah. Because I will never forget reading... Uh, reviews of Sonic Adventure 2 back in the day. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it was the IGN review I read that referred to Rouge as an annoying bat with breasts. Yeah. So, which is the best description of her ever. The worst part about Rouge is that, uh, uh, besides, you know, uh, other than her existence, is that that, uh, her name means red in French. Uh, but she's not red. She's like purple and gray. She's like purple, yeah. And uh, I don't know if it was just ended up being a misspelling of rogue. <laughs> but, 
because that was like the joke back in like the early World of Warcraft days where everybody spelled rogue wrong. They spelled it R O U G E instead of R O G U E, and everyone was like, "Oh, you play a you play a, a rouge," and like they would say it wrong. It was a bad joke, but that was the joke. And then, uh, okay, so con- rouge emotes all over the track. Continuing, uh, yes, Amy Rose. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is when shit started to go real bad. Yes, uh, yeah. go on. Uh, Cream the rabbit. Yep. And her chow, Cheese. Yeah. <laughs> her chow's name was Cheese. And uh, and my boy, Big the Cat. Right. Who, Big Big the Cat, again, the oldest person in the Sonic universe, had a whopping 19 years old. Wait, uh, but that's four people. Huh? That team had four? Well, I, I the chow didn't do anything. It just kind of floated there. Oh, okay. Uh, but his name was Cheese. So right, right. I, if you want to count it as a character, then sure. But, yeah, he was in the first Sonic Adventure, um, Big the Cat. Oh, yes. Uh, but, yeah. Um, I also am not sure if it's a cat, but... Yeah, I wondered that, too. <laughs> Big the Cat does not look like a cat at all. <laughs> it does not. I, I own a cat. I am a cat owner, and it, it does not look like a cat. Uh, and then, to round it out, like... The true bottom of the barrel, like the, the <laughs> like the the people who I am pretty sure did not exist before or after this game. Espio the chameleon. Oh my god. Char Charmy B. What? I don't remember this. And Vector the crocodile. Oh, I do remember Vector. So Vector was in a. He was in um. He actually makes a cameo in Smash Brothers Brawl, which is amazing. Um, but Breaking he's he's off. in he is in no he is in no good Sonic games. He's in Sonic Colors. He makes an appearance in Sonic and Mario at the Olympic Games. He's a trophy in Super Smash Brothers, and uh, he's in Sonic Heroes. But that's it. Like he's he's like the guy they go to when they can't think of anybody better. Um, Espio the Chameleon is a purple chameleon that was in Sonic Heroes, uh, and was a sticker in Brawl, uh, was in... That's bad, when when your most significant appearance (laughs) is as a sticker. Was in Sonic Generations, uh, in the, the console version of Sonic Generations, so okay. And, uh... Yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, and then Charmy B uh, was in was also a sticker in Brawl, <laughs> and was also in Sonic Generations. I told you they brought back a lot of people for Sonic Generations just to be like side characters. Yeah, so I I, I would be hard pressed to find anybody whose favorite character in this in the Sonic universe is any of the three that I just mentioned. But they they were here and uh, they were main characters in in Sonic Heroes, so I kind of appreciated that. Uh, again, it wasn't very good. And then the last game, um, uh, Valkyria Chronicles. Uh, it, this was the one overlap. This was the one I didn't want to get rid of. Uh, Val- we could spend the rest of the time talking about Valkyria Chronicles, but real quick, I just want to say it's like um, I cannot think of anything uh, like it. Uh, before or after, yeah, um, it really isn't. And it's great. It, it, it's it's essentially um, it's it's a it's a turn based uh, RTS, right? It, n- not an RTS. Um, it's a it's tactics turn based strategy it's, game with real time elements, right? It's, so it's it's a tactics game, kind of like Final Fantasy Tactics and like Fire Emblem, but it's real time, meaning you don't like pick your character and then pick a spot for it to move. Uh, it's like your turn to move. So it's turn-based in that regard, but everything that you do during your turn is in real time. So you move, uh, you have like a specific distance that your character can go, you get to a certain point, you hide behind cover, and you you shoot, but you actually aim and shoot. You don't just like pick a thing to attack. And uh, it took place in like this alternate reality, like World War I type kind of era in in Europe. And... um, with an awesome visual style. Yeah, super super cool, like kind of like uh, like watercolor, cel shaded kind of like anime style, uh, art style, and um, the gameplay was was awesome. Uh, it was 
um, it was a PS3 exclusive, and then Valkyria Chronicle two and three were PSP exclusive, which was uh, which was cruel and unusual. But that's what happened. That's what happened. Though Valkyria Chronicles did make the jump to Steam later. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. So, uh, but yeah, I remember I remember being upset in in college because I couldn't play Valkyria Chronicles two and three because I didn't have a PSP. But uh, if you're willing to go the Slightly less than legal routes. There are options to play those games. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, uh, it's kind of weird that Sega chose not to release those games here. Yeah, definitely. So, so that's that. that those are those are our honorable mentions. Those are our our nine games that uh, we think kind of will you know forever leave an imprint upon us and maybe people our age uh, for for Sega. Um, but we we need to look to the future, right? And, and we got uh, we got about we got about ten fifteen minutes left in the podcast. We we want to talk about where we think Sega is going to end up, where we think they're going to go. So I'll start off this segment by saying that most recent news about Sega has not been uh, good or promising. Um, not really. No, they are definitely at their probably their weakest. These days. Right. So Sega, uh, as we know, stopped doing consoles. They started doing uh, – they started being a third-party uh, developer and publisher. Um, they uh, have restructured recently. They mm-hmm. – uh, their uh, arcade uh, business even in Japan is slipping. Um, they have uh, relocated uh, Sega of America um, from San Francisco – um, they have, uh, d- they did not have a booth at the latest E3s. Um, they have a new president and CEO. Uh, so they're kind of in rebuilding mode, uh, to use a baseball term, but they're, um, it's the best way to describe what they're up to currently. Yeah. Uh, looking on their website, cause I had to think to myself so much of what they built in the 90s as far as like studios and whatnot have basically been gutted either gutted or got rid of the studios or all sorts of things happen so really as far as like brands that they um own and make uh their website is listing sonic of course uh the total war series from the creative assembly which they basically bought uh football manager which i also think they bought Football Manager is, uh, from what I hear, exceedingly popular in, especially in, in Europe. Europe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I understand it's supposed to be a very good uh, at what it does. Yeah, uh, they licensed Aliens, um, and I believe they have like an okay response on the Alien games that they've done. Mm-hmm. Um, then this Company of Heroes, which is a pretty well regarded RCS, and uh, Motorsport Manager, which I don't know anything about, but. Uh, yeah, that's kind of like the wheelhouse of uh, the Sega like core brands right now. But there's also, of course, Yakuza still has a bright future. Yep. Uh, Yakuza Six coming down the pipe. Uh, they also have <laughs> if you're into Hatsune Miku. <laughs> uh, I'm not. <laughs> but yeah, I get I get you. I hear you. Yeah, Hatsune Miku is is very much. It's interesting because that game, that series, even in the West, has become um, more and more popular over the last few years. So yeah, I'll give it that. It, yeah, it, it's very interesting, but you know, whatever. Uh, the Sonic franchise, as we laid out during our Sonic episode, is a, 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 an emotional roller coaster for fans, but. Uh, there seems to be hope, given the announcement of Sonic Mania and uh, what we believe is Generations 2, that uh, Sega has finally gotten the message and is going to do something to help pull that series out of the fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of it for their internal development that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, but they do have one very significant card in their back pocket, and that card is Atlas. Yes. Uh, they acquired Atlas a couple of years ago, which is probably one of the smartest acquisitions they've done 
probably ever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Because Atlas, even though their games are super niche, um, well, not all of them, but most of their games are super niche, but they do well for what they do. Um, and, and they do have the long-term growth franchise, which is, of course, Persona. Uh, Persona mm. is definitely... Persona 5, I'm very curious to see how it does when it comes out here in the West. I have a feeling it's going to be a pretty big deal. Um, maybe not a big deal on the league of a Western-developed open-world game, sure. But I have a feeling it's going to be something that a lot of people look favorably on and hopefully pick up as well, which is good for Atlas and obviously good for Sega Corporate. Yeah, we should find out more about like what's going on arcade side because now I'm actually pretty curious to see uh, what the future's like there. But I mean, they still have—I wouldn't use the word stranglehold, but they're still very much a player in arcade. Oh, I mean, totally. Shit, they have Club Sega in Japan. Oh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> fun fact: uh, shout out to Level Up Your Game, uh, Rip Tekken streamer. Uh, he was out there in Japan, and I actually was streaming a lot of them just, like, walking around and walking through Club Sega, which is, like, a six-floor arcade. Right. And there's actually a few of them yeah. in in, uh, in Japan. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they very much have that going for them. But I am curious to see kind of what the, the plan in their arcade division is for the future. In general, we know that arcade machines going forward are one they've added online play which is kind of weird but okay <laughs> and, and they've doubled down on as we said before big flashy can't get at home right yeah wow. and uh or or doesn't translate as well at, in at home right um which again is tough to do because a lot of them do translate well enough but so but if anyone if anyone has shown that uh, that's something that they can do at Sega. So, uh, so yeah, the, the thing the thing with Sega right now is that, and this is kind of like my uh, hope. I, I doubt it'll play out this way, but because uh, Sega Sega whether they want to whether they can handle it or not has a global presence, right? Yeah, they've uh, they've got divisions all over the place. They've got. Uh, I mean, heck, I went to uh, I went to the UK earlier this year, and they had a giant building with Sega big letters right on the top of it, right outside of London. So, oh wow! I drove past it; was right on the highway. I couldn't take a picture of it because I was driving uh, on the left, which is uh, <laughs> scary. But um, but yeah, they, like they they have a global presence, whether whether they can handle it or not. And I think right now. Uh, like I said, they're in a rebuilding stage. They've made a lot of acquisitions and they've done a lot of partnerships in the last couple of years. And I think what they're trying to do now is trying to figure out what sticks. And what I would like to see is for them to not reinvent themselves, but kind of uh, understand that we are living in a world of multiplicity currently, in, especially in video games. Uh, where you can do one thing or two things really, really, really well and go as far down the rabbit hole with those things as you want. And that can bring you at least moderate success. And I think with all of the things that they're, all the partnerships they're doing, I mean, it says here they've done, uh, I mean, they've done, uh, like, like they own, they have, they have their finger in the pie for, from everything from Yakuza to uh, Shimigami Tensei at this point, um, right. and they've done uh, they've done collaborations with Obsidian, uh, you know, big Western developers like Obsidian and Gearbox. Uh, so they're really all over the place, and I, I think you know, in, instead of trying to go back to being this like big global thing with the with the big global mascot, kind of you know, figuring out what works what works now and kind of going all in on that one thing. And I don't know if that's plausible for a company this big and this global, but uh, I think that might be a good place to start. And, you know, persona might be the answer. Who knows? Uh, um, you know, maybe, maybe arcade ports might be it. Uh, arcade ports from Japan, maybe, you know, continuing working with uh, indie developers and then kind of like, 
uh, putting up the money to develop their own with with some of you know maybe some like former Gearbox or former Obsidian guys and making some like Western influenced games. Like maybe that could be their next kind of you know uh, you know big hit. Who knows? But I I think that they need to really understand how gaming works in the West. Um, well, to be fair, I would say if anybody understands how gaming works in the West, it's Sega. Yeah. Sega has, I think, pretty consistently been a leader in having a Western-first mindset. I mean, hell, the whole Console Wars book was about how Sega of America really wound up leading the charge uh, for the company. Oh, definitely. I, I think the problem for Sega now is that after all the years of tumult uh, and horrible business decisions and bleeding money, it, they're basically still trying to get a basic foothold. Uh, so before I could even worry about, you know, going after the, the real war, they basically still have to build the army again, uh, which, as you said, seems to be what they're trying to do now. Uh, who knows what goes on inside Sega? Why that never seems to they can never seem to get off the starting line in that particular effort. Um, but I do have hope. I would like to see them. It seems like so far they've been pretty hands off when it comes to Atlas, uh, which usually is a good thing. But I feel like in in this case, uh, I feel like this is an opportunity that is being a bit squandered. Yeah. Because the thing with Atlas, Atlas does a lot of great work, but they don't have resources. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, uh, who kn- again, who knows what the internal situation is at Sega, but I feel like Sega should do more to get them the resources to make them more, a bigger deal. Because, especially when it comes to Persona, we know that they have, as far as Japanese RPG gaming, Atlas has some of the best minds currently doing it. So if they can kind of pursue that to the best of their ability, they could really, you know, shake up the market. The fact that we are now at the point where Persona is a a bigger name, really, to, to fans who know what they're talking about, uh, Persona is a bigger name than Final Fantasy, that should tell you a lot yeah. of the, about the, the, the magnitude of the asset that they have on their hands. Mm-hmm. So hopefully they leverage that. Hopefully they get Sonic back into good order because... Sonic should be like Mario, like an evergreen thing for them. There's no reason why it can't be. Um, yeah, and hopefully they can pursue some kind of strategy that'll you know keep them bring us hot shit. Yeah, and, and and if there's anything they're good at, and if it pans out that way, where uh, you know where they can they can uh, you know really turn the tides with uh, with Persona Five, and you know Persona becomes. Uh, you know, kind of their, uh, not bread and butter, but, but kind of like their, their new hotness. If there's anything there that Sega is really good at and has always kind of been good at is, uh, merchandising of their own IP. And right. if they can figure out a way to either like fund, uh, merchandising of the persona series or, you know, whatever, uh, that shit will sell too, but the game's got to be good first. And, and I think it's, you're right. Like it's, that's, it's got it's got a bigger it's got a bigger um, I, I guess I guess you could say it has a bigger mind share for uh, you know for the JR the JRPG hardcore crowd. There's no doubt about that. So, you know, um, so yeah, that's you know there, there's there's a, a a lot we need to pay attention to with um, with Sega. Uh, you know, only time will tell how the, how all this pans out. But uh, hopefully, the restructuring goes well, the rebuilding goes well. They they do they do have some potentials in their, you know, in their farm system, to use another baseball term. Huh. But um, but yeah, but yeah, uh, Sega Sega is currently the um, <laughs> Sega is currently currently the uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks of the video game world. They've got a lot of assets, but they haven't been doing so great, and you're kind of not sure what went wrong, but there's always hope for the future. I like that. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I'll take that. All right. 
So but I suppose that wraps it up. That's yeah, the, that's the Sega Suite. That's it. That's the Sega Suite. Uh, you know, th- uh, I, I hope everyone appreciated us giving uh, Sega some some play. Uh, you know, we we kind of realized that they needed it uh, right around the same time, so we we concocted this thing. We re- we read the book. We did our research. Um, hopefully, we didn't make any. Uh, uh, you know, accuracy flaws. But again, if, if we, if we did, we always welcome, uh, we're always open to to the discussion. If you want to reach out to us, you can, uh, on Twitter, uh, at frog snacks. We have an Instagram also at frog snacks podcast, and you can, you can check out all of our episodes on our website, frogsnacks.net, along with all of our written content. And of course we're on iTunes and you can subscribe to us there and rate us and review the podcast. If you, uh, feel so inclined, but uh, if that's all we have uh, for today, we will um, see you guys next week. Next time, guys. Later. Peace out.